cliffcentral.com. Cynthia Griffin is the Minister Counselor for Commercial Affairs for Sub-Saharan Africa. And um, she was just uh, passing by because we, uh, we live like next door to each other. Right. And um, I thought, what an opportunity to bring her in here and talk to you about the work that you're doing and the places you've been and the people you've met and the things that you've done yeah. because you have an incredible CV. I mean, this is quite something. I'm not going to go through all of it, but on this list, Beijing, Australia, Thailand, Senegal, um, obviously back home in Connecticut. Yeah. Um, and you are a really, really accomplished woman. You speak Mandarin. You speak French. You're also proficient in Thai. Mm -hmm. I mean, where do we even begin? How, how did the how did the Foreign Service get lucky enough to find you? Oh my goodness! No, you're too <laughs> kind. Thank you so much, Gareth. It's great to be here with you. Great to meet you. Gosh, you know, I grew up overseas. My father was in the private sector, and we grew up in France. So I lived okay. there for five years, and he was one who believed that when you're living in a foreign country, you go to school there in that foreign country. We didn't go to American schools, so we're thrown right into the French school system. Had to learn French from a young age, and from there, I just got the travel bug, and lived overseas probably most of my life. So tell me about your parents, because, yeah. I mean, that must be an interesting story, too. You know, there are there are generational stories and there are those mm -hmm. things that people always go wow at. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you're yeah. you're a very wow person. But I mean, yeah. your, your parents must be extraordinary people, too. No, they were. Unfortunately, they passed away young. I'm sorry. Uh, but um, no, my father worked for United Technologies Corporation. So oh. big U.S. Uh, multinational corporation, Pratt & Whitney aircraft engines. Yeah. And so um, he had the opportunity to serve as a, a, a technical assistant overseas in France. So Is that he was because of Boeing and Airbus both yeah. being in France? And, and, and Air France. So he was um, like assigned to Air France uh, while we were living in France to make sure that all the support was provided for these Pratt & Whitney aircraft engines that were on the fleet of planes in France. And so that's what brought us there and uh, lived there for five years and then came back to the United States to go to high school. But I think my parents were, you know, uh, forward-leaning in terms of opening up opportunities for us because I don't know that they're – that many black American families at the time, you know, living and working overseas. Well, that's why I so, asked. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, it, you know, it's the kind of thing that people just take for granted now. Mm. But in their day, it must have been quite an extraordinary thing mm. for them mm -hmm. to be doing this. And your mom? And my mother was a homemaker. So she stayed at home and, you know, we had sat down for breakfast, lunch when we were not in school and dinners. So one of those types of families where our mother was at home and just provided for us. What a, um, so what she's a, a lucky, much a homemaker. What a lucky way to grow up. I wonder how many people, you know, Kids growing up today have the yeah. opportunity of having their mom there the whole time. Most yeah. people have to work. Right. You know, both parents have to work maybe right. more than one job. Right. So right. it's the exception to the rule now. Right. It might have once been right. normal. Right. And so I also very, grew up with, considered ourselves very blessed and yeah, fortunate. Yeah. yeah. I'm also, I feel very lucky that my mom was there when we were growing up. Mm -hmm. So what appealed to you about going into the foreign service? Because you studied all of these varied things. I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of it could have been applicable in the private sector or in, mm -hmm. in government. Mm -hmm. I guess this, this, this interest in public service, you know, um, you know, what was the, I always want to look at maybe being a diplomat and living overseas, working overseas, and then, you know, combining an interest in U.S. corporates. You know, what can right. I do to help U.S. companies that are looking to do more overseas? So I kind of fell into the foreign service after having uh, lived and studied in, uh, um, in Taiwan, and it was really my Chinese language skills that I think attracted, that got the attention of the Foreign Commercial Service. Well, maybe we should start with that. Why 
why study Chinese? Yeah. Because that's, you know, there are a lot of people in South Africa who study Chinese. I mm-hmm. know that our president's son is, is fluent in Chinese, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Yes. Um, but there are not a lot of people. I mean, it is a world language. So now it seems obvious. But when you were studying right. Chinese, it wasn't obvious. Back in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, don't, don't date yourself. You look younger than me. So I'm... You're too I, I kind. Mean, in the 80s, mm. there, there, there was, I mean, China was obviously a, a, a burgeoning power. It's mm-hmm. always been yeah. there kind of, mm-hmm. you know, looming on, mm-hmm. on the horizon in terms of all the international relations that have taken place since, you know, the, the, the Chinese revolution back in the early 1900s. But right. for, for Westerners to yeah. speak Mandarin, it's still a rare thing, mm-hmm. even now. It is, it is. So, you know, having grown up in Europe, I studied European languages, you know, uh, English, well, French and um, German. Um, and then my father had the opportunity to go to China in the early days uh, with United Technologies Corporation. And he was just struck about the opportunities, the potential. And so, again, coming out of Europe, I just thought I'd be a UN interpreter, as you would, right? <laughs> <laughs> you have the, the, all the European languages. Um, but he challenged me to think about studying Chinese, um, looking forward, thinking that there would probably be a lot of opportunities as as China grew and developed. Um, and so I just thought, okay, so I'll, stu- I'll study Chinese. That's forward thinking of him. It certainly was. It certainly uh, were, was. were you happy with the idea and, and did you take to it easily? Because it's a very difficult language. I was learn. happy with the idea and I went to Connecticut College. Uh, it used to be Connecticut College for Women in New London, Connecticut, and they had an outstanding Chinese language program. So when I was looking to go to university, I looked at programs, you know, University of Michigan, mm. Yale, um, and I ended up on Connecticut College where the, the, the team was just so welcoming. The professors were just so welcoming and it was pretty much a no-brainer for me. And I stuck with it. So there were about 20 of us that started in Chinese as a major, you know, and uh, we ended up with just three of us graduating with a major in, in Chinese. I so did, it is difficult. And a minor in um, Asian studies. So, wow. Um, and I mean, you, you also, not to make too much of a fuss about this, but it is rare these days. I mean, we have 11 official languages in South Africa, mm-hmm. yet most people are only aware of those languages. We don't really have a lot of people who speak Chinese or mm. who speak French or German or Spanish or any mm. of those things. Mm. And so it is an odd thing, and I hope I'm not making too much of a fuss mm. about it. Mm. But Thai is also very different to Chinese. Right. And to then have that in your right. skill set as well, I mean, this this makes you exactly the person you need on your side if anything really uh, awful breaks no. out anywhere in the world. You're like, get hold of Cynthia. We need her help. No. I will try. But if I get two languages mixed up, it's Chinese and Thai. And when I speak Thai, people say, sound like I'm Chinese. Oh, so, okay. Um, yeah, so my French doesn't come in or my English doesn't come in, but the, the those Asian wow. languages, sometimes I get, do get confused. But uh, So after they, they sought you out then because you had these, among other skills, you had these uh, abilities. And the Foreign Service in America works differently to the way that it works, for example, in South Africa or in the UK, where um, it is also the administration's purview to decide to deploy people here, there, and everywhere. But, of course, there is a professional civil service and those people are often as you have been posted to various places in the world where they're most required and your job could you know it could entail a whole bunch of different things mm-hmm. some of them within the portfolio you're doing now mm-hmm. of more of the commercial stuff mm-hmm. but very often it could be having to take calls at 3 a.m because the president needs to get hold of someone in the government on that side or having to negotiate some sort of deal uh, over trade routes uh, commercial trade opportunities that American companies want to seek out there it could be any number of things. 
So it's always exciting, right? It is. And that's one thing I love about the Foreign Service. Like every three or four years, we're changing jobs, changing countries, and uh, learning new things all the time. So you talk about that three o'clock call in Australia during the tsunami um, in Japan. Um, there was a call to get coolers um, from Australia to Japan to help cool things down during the tsunami and the, and the, and the nuclear crisis of at the course. time. The, the and Fukushima. so, yes. Yeah. So we are available 24-7 to answer that call and to see how we can mobilize. And that's why it's important for us to have great relationships with the host country, great relationships with the business communities, and see how we can assist. So um, we, we just, you know, we love our work, and um, I love the U.S. Foreign Service. All right, but you, you've hinted at something that not a lot of people are, are comfortable with. Most of us like to put our roots down, and mm-hmm. we like to have a home, and we like to have our things around us, and we, we like to know our route to work every day, and we can plan our world accordingly. And Obviously, there are downsides to being in the Foreign Service because you can never do that. And it's very difficult to keep up relationships if you're constantly moving. It's very difficult to have a family. Uh, for many people, this is the struggle, right? It's like a, a life choice that you make early on. And if you're going to stick to it, mm-hmm. and especially for women, I think, mm-hmm. it's even harder than it is for men. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's Perhaps, right? Yeah, I think it might be a little bit more challenging for women. But we do have families, you know, in the Foreign Service. And one other thing I like is that no matter where we go, there's always a support system in place. You know, right. you're bound to know somebody within the embassy community or it, in other embassy communities, you know, as, you know, other diplomats travel around the world. Uh, so that's exciting. But, you know, sometimes you do miss out on family things that are happening back home. Sure. I'm Graduations making, right. and birthdays. So and- I'm making an effort now to put those things in my calendar first and make sure that I'm back <laughs> United States for those types of activities because you do sometimes miss out. But that, you know, there are families in the Foreign Service that do very well. And I think it might be a little easier on men uh, than it is on women. Uh, I know I've had my challenges, um, my relationships and men following me around the world, which can be, you know, hard. Well, I mean, but, for them, um, I mean, it means they have to kind of give up whatever they're doing or be able to do it, which is a rare rare opportunity virtually from wherever yeah right. i mean look covid did kind of show us that mm-hmm. there are other ways of doing things correct but it must be difficult it is a challenge it is yeah. a challenge and people have to be mindful of how they chart their careers and you know their family and and people do that as well you know hope to be in a post so that their children can get through high school you right. know, so they're not moving in the middle of high school yeah. or something like that absolutely so you just have to be mindful but it can be done Okay, so th- these, these places you've been, I mean, first of all, being Minister Council of Commercial Affairs, the same thing you're doing here in Beijing, mm-hmm. which was from 2017 till 2021. So you were there at the outbreak of COVID. Absolutely. I mean, what was that like? My God, because that's become almost like the story of our lives, right? right this is right. those three, those two, three years that we all missed right. out on living right. and our whole lives were upended. Right. And you were in the, the epicenter mm-hmm. of all of this. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty surreal, you know, when um, when we finally realized what was happening in Wuhan. I was part of the team under Ambassador Branstead that helped to evacuate Americans out mm-hmm. of Wuhan um, and get them back to the United States. We got our uh, official Americans out. We got private sector, Amer- private American citizens out who want to leave China at the time. And um, and then I stayed behind. We evacuated pretty much all of the U.S. mission from all the consulates. Um, you know, uh, Guangzhou, Shanghai, Shenyang. We had closed our consulate in China. How many people earlier. are we talking about here? Hundreds. We're talking hundreds. And we're talking oh. about hundreds of charter flights that we had to arrange. You know, and it was a whole team effort with the, you know, the management team, the, the ambassador, the deputy chief of mission, the chargé d'affaires, um, the political team, the economic team. It was, so there was and a small core group to, of us that stayed behind to help. But this is different to, um, evacuating people in a conflict zone, for example, because here you've also got the health concerns. 
concern. And, you know, people were worried about how does this thing spread at the beginning Correct. anyway. Correct. Yeah. Like how does this thing spread? Right. Is it safe to send them back to Correct. the U.S.? There are all kinds of administration decisions being made Correct. there about should we let people in? Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is – it becomes really, really scary right. for people yeah. who are trapped. And people had to make the decision as to whether or not they want to get on that plane to go back to the United States. Is it safe? And obviously we couldn't answer those questions. And when you get We would there, make it as safe as it could be. Are right? you going to be put in quarantine? You didn't Absolutely. know. Absolutely. Now we look back and we go, oh, well, obviously, but yep. the benefit of hindsight, right? Right, right. right. So it was a, a real heavy lift and working very closely with the interagency in Washington as well. And we had daily morning and evening calls. Um, situational um, sit rep calls, situational you know awareness calls, and you know what was going to happen that day, how many planes were going to get out, and if there were you know delays in planes either coming in or leaving. Did you ever? Because you could talk about this now, I think. Did you ever find yourself sharing a screen with the Situation Room in in the White House? Uh, we weren't sharing screens at that time, but it was all via teleconference. Oh wow! Teleconference. Okay, yes. so you you were sometimes talking to the the president. I, I don't think the president was on the calls, but certainly his okay. team would have been. Absolutely. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is another fun thing about being in the professional service as you are, is that people assume that you absolutely love the politics of, of whoever the guy is in charge. You don't necessarily have to. And it's your job to almost walk a middle line when you're serving President Biden, whether you're serving President Trump, whether you're serving President Obama. You have to do your job regardless And I'm sure during this time in in China, there was also specific to your portfolio here, there were a lot of commercial concerns because American trade with China is one of the most, you know, one of the the greatest channels of trade in the world. To have, you know, the the Chinese government kind of being extra suspicious, the U.S. government being extra suspicious, and you're in the middle trying to get them to do things together, Mm -hmm. to cooperate meaningfully, Mm -hmm. to not put everything on hold and ruin what has probably been, you know, decades of – I mean, Richard Nixon opened up Mm -hmm. the China-America discussions in the the 70s. So this is a long relationship. And for it all to be put in jeopardy over something like COVID, which it was, especially when no one knew the answers, Mm -hmm. this must have put you in a very difficult position some of the time. Yeah, but, you know, we looked at where we could work together. So, you know, as China was going through COVID, we were getting U.S. products over to China, PPE, personal protective equipment. You know, we were trying to help the Chinese. It was about Mm -hmm. helping the Chinese people. And then when we realized what COVID was and it was spreading around the world, then, you know, we're all helping one another to get the, the, the PPE that we needed. So it was, again, people coming together, companies coming together. Um, yes, you know, we had our challenges on the bilateral relationship. Um, it was a, a challenging time. But I'm just proud of the way the, you know, the American Chamber of Commerce, the U.S. companies, you know, helped the Chinese people and vice versa. Uh, one of the proudest days was uh, the New England Patriots sent a whole plane load of PPE Oh no, they got a whole plane load of PPE from China to the United States. Wow. They sent the, the, the New England Patriots <clears throat> corporate plane oh, and wow. filled it with PPE that they had procured to then get into the, to the U.S. So. There were a lot of people doing a lot of good who never really got credit during mm. that time, huh? Mm-hmm. Sadly. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, now it's all ancient history and we're all trying to just move, move on with our lives and forget about it. But it was an incredibly fractious time in the mm, world. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned your time in Australia when obviously the tsunami hit in, in Japan. But there's, Australia is also a unique place and couldn't be more different 
than China. It's, there's some similarities with South Africa. I'm sure you'd be able to objectively look mm. at those more than I would. Mm-hmm. We, we don't like Australians from a sport point of view. We're very competitive <laughs> with them. But we're actually kind of similar to them in some ways. And I, I think that there must be some things that remind you, oh, okay, this, that, there's one area where they have overlapping interests and overlapping mm-hmm. personality mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. I'd have to reflect on that. <laughs> Both are beautiful countries. Both are just gorgeous places. And so different to China and Thailand, for oh, example. Oh, very. Yes, right. very, very. So very. are you allowed to have favorites? I mean, is South Africa a fun place for you? And you can give us a rating out of 10 and then compare no, it to the No, South Africa is absolutely fun. And, and people ask me that question, where's your favorite place? And they've all been great for one reason or another. Yeah, you know, that's, a very, that's a very foreign service answer. A, a diplomatic answer. <laughs> but it's true. I knew I wouldn't it's be able to true. get you to say anything about that. But I mean, we've also been to Senegal, right? Yes. Which is a, mm-hmm. a fascinating place too because yes. people think, I'm afraid, a lot of Americans that I've met who haven't traveled a lot mm. – Say to me, oh, you're in Africa. Where in, are, you, are you in Johannesburg? And then they only know Johannesburg and Cairo, and they think that we're right next door to each other. Right. I'm like, no, no, there are a lot of countries in Africa, yeah. and they're all very different. And some of them, they don't speak English. and mm-hmm. Some of them, they don't speak French. Mm-hmm. And Africa is a, a very exciting place where lots of things are happening mm-hmm. all at once. It's not unidimensional. Right. Very diverse. I, I'll say, you know, 20 years ago when I was serving in Nairobi, I was trying to get a U.S. franchise concept, and I won't say which one, uh, to look at East Africa. And I said, you know, in Nairobi, and we'd love for you to come out here. They're like, oh, well, we're not looking at Nigeria right now. (laughs) (laughs) You see? You know, and so it's about educating. It's about educating people. It's about educating companies. It's about letting them know about the opportunities here. It's a diverse continent, and there's so many opportunities. And that's what we want to do, bring more, um, you know, countries, companies, U.S. companies to the continent. And and I think that your job must be very exciting from that point of view because South Africa is in some ways a gateway Mm -hmm. to the rest of Africa. I've always been a, a massive advocate for the fact that this is a young continent. There are a lot of very, very uh, hungry people. And I don't mean hungry in a, yeah. like, we're mm-hmm. desperate for food no, sense. I mean, these people are, they are driven. They are dynamic. They are trying to be and play their part in the world. They want consumer goods. They want to know what's happening. They're more connected mm-hmm. than any generation before. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. must look at that as an enormous opportunity, and rightly so, mm-hmm. for them to, first of all, export all their material services, all kinds of other things, and mm-hmm. also for them to be a part of the story of the next generation mm-hmm. because this is kind of where there's still room for us to fix problems. And we right, have lots right. of problems and challenges, right. but we also have people who are very, very much equipped to, to fix those problems. There are opportunities right. everywhere. We're excited about the entrepreneurial spirit here that we see in, in sub-Saharan Africa and the opportunities, right? So where there are challenges, mm. then you turn that into yeah. an opportunity. Absolutely. So, you know, shortly the our vice president will be traveling across the continent and she'll be engaging with youth and looking at entrepreneurship and innovation and also how we can stimulate um, engagement between small and medium-sized enterprises. That's a mission on the U.S. side. And I know it's a mission across different um, countries across sub-Saharan Africa. I know you won't comment on this, but I can say it's something that irritates me. Our government pay a lot of lip service to small and medium enterprises, and I wish they would actually do it. So uh, in the absence of them doing it, I'm standing here with open arms saying, please, there are lots of very talented, very capable 
very driven young South Africans mm-hmm. who have small businesses and they want to make connections mm-hmm. with people internationally so that they can do what they're doing on a much bigger scale. So that's what we're trying to do. And then, uh, you know, in a, a few weeks, the African Continental Free Trade Area is going to have their business summit in Cape Town. And I've just learned that the Commercial Law Diplomacy Program, a part of the U.S. Department of Commerce, is doing a master class on SMEs. So awesome. I want to know more about that that's and then great. how we can get more people involved. Um, so I was just excited to learn that. So what do you think of, of what South Africans are doing right and wrong and how America is actually, in my opinion, you guys, are the U.S. is so involved in Africa. You have embassies all over the continent. They all do diverse and interesting things. You've got programs in this country, PEPFAR, and you've got USAID, and you've got incredible non-government organizations and commercial organizations who are very involved in communities, in the economy, in society. And I sometimes feel that a lot of that stuff gets dismissed because on the big global scale, all that people are talking about is foreign policy, whether or not we're voting the same way at the UN, whether or not we're allied on issues like the Ukraine and Russia, which is potentially an area for some uh, issues to develop between South Africa and the US. Already we've had our own foreign affairs ministry being pulled into that. That's none of your problem or your business. But obviously there are brilliant things that the US is doing in South Africa, which I think it's worth boasting about. Right. And we need to get that story out. So thank you for helping us to elevate that because U.S. companies are doing great things here. You know, we have over 600 U.S. companies invested in South Africa, employing over 220,000 people. That's direct employment. So doesn't even talk about indirect employment and all the work that U.S. companies are doing in communities. So I'm trying to get my hand around that. Um, get my head around that too, and then see how we can, again, elevate the work that these companies are doing, the NGOs are doing. Yeah. Like you say, USAID is doing great work. We just celebrated 20 years of PEPFAR here um, in the world. And we were talking earlier about different administrations coming up with initiatives that continue throughout administrations I mean, the, the, in the United States. There are States. programs that South Africa, for example, can be very grateful for. And I don't mean in some master-servant relationship mm-hmm, way. Not at all. I mean that we're able to do things since you know, the the Bush two era, mm. which really opened up enormous commercial opportunities for mm-hmm. South Africans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are all sorts of initiatives that are being worked on constantly by not only your department here and our own uh, foreign service here, which are, I mean, I know I've got friends who, who work in the, the South African diplomatic corps and they work damned hard mm-hmm. to keep those relations warm. Mm-hmm. But often these things are pushed to the, the extremes and nobody pays attention to the important stuff that's going on, the, the really heavy lifting that happens in between. Right. And that's why we need to really talk about that and, and get those stories that's one of the out reasons there. I'm glad you you're know, here. thank you. Thank you. I mean, I'm <laughs> excited about what's happening in Cape Town too in the, in the bio, um, uh, tech space with, yeah. you know, healthcare and vaccine manufacturing, possibly not just for Africa, but for the world, mm-hmm. you know, and we're looking industry with universities, uh, with the Western Cape government. They're looking at, you know, setting up hubs there so that, the young people as they go to school are learning the right skill sets so they can be employed right here and mm-hmm. not being poached to go elsewhere. Um, you know, building up that skill set in the continent for the continent. So I'm excited about what's happening there as well. You and know. you say Kamala Harris is coming. She is to the continent. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, is mm-hmm. she going to come here or is that not clear yet? I don't think that's quite clear yet. We know if it, she it, misses it, out on us, I'll be very <laughs> angry. Just let her know. All right. Um, do you, do you have much to do with, uh, the, the, the foreign companies who, you know, like the ones that we all know and use every day, uh, you know, the, the Facebooks and the, 
and the, the Teslas and these people, because obviously there are all kinds of connections there as well. Um, and we've got lots of South Africans who work in the U.S. Mm-hmm. who obviously have friends and family over here too and probably mm-hmm. want to keep those relations warm. Do you have people from South Africa who want to connect to, to companies there just as much as you have companies there who want to connect to Yes, uh, less so though. I'm seeing less of the South African companies connecting with the U.S. and we have a role to play there mm-hmm. and to do more. Uh, we're working with a few, a handful of South African companies that are looking to uh, open franchise concepts, South African franchise concepts in the United States. We're there to support that as well. Um, so it's about the two-way trade and how we can help facilitate engagements. Um, just recently, I was at an event where I met a, a good-sized South African company that's looking to do more um, with a US, with U.S. companies. So it's like, what are the opportunities? You know, we bring um, business delegations here from the United States. We've had business delegations from the state of Maryland, Prince George's County, city of Houston. We're engaged with the Hautang provincial government. And some of these are smaller companies too. And so what are we doing again to get smaller companies in front of one another? And what more can we do in advance of these delegations coming to let people know that there's an opportunity? These are the profiles of the U.S. companies that are coming. One of our colleagues right now is in the United States with um, IT, South African IT companies yeah. with our U.S. trained development agency colleagues where we do what we call First trade missions to the United States to learn about some of the latest and greatest in ICT. Um, yeah, that's where and it's so all happening. She's leading that delegation um, to the United States, and so we're looking for these opportunities all the time. You know, there there are South African companies that are also seeking to forge those relationships. And uh, about five, maybe even six years ago, I went over with Investec, mm-hmm. who led a team of almost 20 young entrepreneurs who'd all started businesses in the financial services and mm. fintech and, and, and media sort of arena. And not that those all overlap, but mm. there were p- various people from various ones. Mm. And of those people, I think three of them have established companies in the U.S. as well. So Very these good. are the real-life situations that are occurring mm-hmm. because people are pursuing these relationships and right. and also pursuing the, the market opportunities right right, right. so there's a there, there's already plenty happening right. um, some of these people have you know transport businesses they started in Durban in KwaZulu Natal and they're now thriving on an international level because they've come up with some solution to a problem which nobody else in the world's thought of yet yep. Yep. Very, very clever people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we have this big Select USA Summit in Washington, D.C. every year. I think it's in May of this year, May or early June. Mm. Uh, last year, a young South African woman went and set up set up a, an office in the United States in Prince George's County. Right. Uh, they were so welcoming, gave her all whatever the credit she needed, and within a short period of time that happened. And so it's possible if people want to look at, you know, tapping into the U.S. market expanding their business into the U.S. market. Um, separately, I met with a young woman in Ghana because I cover, you know, the, all of sub-Saharan Africa. Sure. She's doing all the back um, behind the scenes data analytics for some major U.S. companies, doing it right there in Ghana and employing young Ghanaians. She has about 20, 25 on her staff of young Ghanaian data analysts. Um, so I'm always amazed at, like you talked about earlier, what the young people can do, mm. um, are doing, mm-hmm. how we help to enable them and create that environment. Um, also, we just had a, a pitch fest for, again, South African companies looking to maybe tap into the U.S. market. Um, and um, one of them, one, I can't remember the name of the South African company, but again, an opportunity to go over to the United States and see if that concept would work or maybe go to the United States to go into an incubator and, mm. and maybe develop that concept. Um, so we're doing exciting things. 
We it's, just got to get the word out. <laughs> it, it sounds like it. And if we can help you get the word out, you just let me know. It's great to have you here. And I'm really appreciative of your time. I know how busy you are, but it's great to also get to know you a little no, bit. Same here. So thank you for coming thank to talk you, to us. Thank you, neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Cynthia right. A. Griffin, who's the Minister Counselor for Commercial Affairs for Sub-Saharan Africa at the U.S. Embassy and Consulate. Thank you. Thank you. Cliffcentral.com.